Renew Next, a podcast about soul care, scripture, and stories of faith. I'm Jenny Detweiler, and I'm so glad that you've joined me here today. Today's episode is a biography episode. Let me tell you, doing a biography episode is a lot more work than an average podcast. I never thought I'd grow up to willingly do a book report, but you know what? It's so worth it. I learned so much from reading about the lives of saints. And I've heard from a couple of you listeners that the biography episodes are your favorites too. So I cannot wait to introduce you to today's subject, Katarina Luther. Now her husband, Martin Luther, is one of the most famous men of church history. There are books and books and books written about his life, but his wife was incredibly important to the Reformation as well. So in today's episode, you will hear plenty about Martin Luther. Believe me, he is definitely a fascinating character. But we're really going to dive into the life of his nun-turned-wife, Katarina. Her faith and bravery are inspiring. So with that, let's jump into her story. Most scholars agree that Katarina von Bora was born on January 29, 1499. Because she was a woman born centuries ago, at a time when women held few rights and little esteem, we have very few of her own words or writings. Her famous husband, Martin Luther's words, are preserved in abundance, but very few of Katarina's documents have been preserved. Of the ones there were, many have been lost or destroyed. Much of what is known about her life is from after meeting Martin Luther. Very little is known about her younger years. Even her birthplace and her mother's name are questioned. It is believed that Katarina descended from Saxon nobility. So here are the facts that are known. Her mother died in 1505 when Katarina was only five or six years old, and her father remarried within the year. Now, Katarina may have descended from nobility, but her family was not at all wealthy. Her father, Hans, was a gentleman farmer, and he was in debt. They had a small parcel of land, but due to an agricultural crisis in the early 1500s, their farm did not provide enough money to care well for the entire family. One of her father's solutions to this problem was to take his six-year-old, Katarina, and put her in a Benedictine convent cloister school. This was a common practice among nobility. Girls were often sent to cloister schools and then to convents. In this way, girls were taken care of, educated, and essentially taken off of the family's responsibility. Although it sounds slightly heartless, on a positive note, convent schools offered opportunities for girls' education in a time when most women were uneducated. Women in the Middle Ages were considered second-class citizens. Most women were illiterate. Katerina herself was only educated because she lived much of her life in a convent. Four years after entering the cloister school, in 1509, Katerina's father arranged for his daughter to move from the cloister school to another convent, where she would become a nun. For a one-time fee, she would essentially be taken care of at the convent for life. At the convent, she would be trained and eventually take her vows as a nun. At that time for women, there were really only two major options for women of nobility, marriage or convent life. During the Middle Ages, convents provided a place where daughters or widows or aristocracy could stay when no suitable marriage match could be made. Paying for your daughter to enter a convent could be a cheaper option than providing an acceptable dowry if you were a family with a higher social circle. Thus, Katerina from a very young age found herself living in a convent, presumably for the rest of her life. And I know that we probably do not relate very well to convent life, so let's talk a little bit about what that could have been like. 
There was a very strict daily routine and regimen. The very first bell of the day rang at 2 a.m. At that time, the nuns would wake up and go recite scripture together, pray, and sing hymns. They could then go back to bed if they wanted to. At daybreak, there was another bell. Five or more hours a day were spent meeting together for services of scripture reading, prayer, and singing. Most of the day was spent in silence. As far as I know, they were really only allowed to use their voices when reciting prayers, scripture, or for singing. And they had many chores to do during the day. Then finally, they went to bed around 7 or 8 p.m. Katerina moved to the convent around the age of 10. And at the age of 16, on October 8, 1515, Katerina made her vows and was consecrated as a nun. Vows in those days were taken extraordinarily seriously, and breaking the vows meant dire consequences. So, that's a good setup for what happens next. We'll put a pin in Katerina's life for a moment and pick her story back up in a little while. Although this podcast episode is about Katerina Luther, not her famous husband, it's important to understand his life to best understand hers. So here, I'm going to dovetail over and talk about Martin Luther's life for a minute. Luther was significantly older than Katerina, and he was a very great student. He worked on a bachelor's and master's degree, and his father strongly hoped that his son would one day become a lawyer. It looked like he was on track to do so, but then one evening, his life changed forever. On July 2nd, 1505, Luther was 22 years old, and he was caught in a thunderstorm. He was so afraid that he was going to die that he called out to St. Anne, praying for safety and protection. He vowed that if he lived, he would become a monk. Well, on the positive side, he lived, which we're all really grateful for. And on the other hand, he had some vows to fulfill. Although he regretted it, Luther believed so strongly in the importance of vows that he felt his very salvation could be in jeopardy if he were not to fulfill it. His father was furious. He felt he had wasted time and money on Luther's education only for him to leave and become a monk. He had also hoped for his son to marry well and provide grandchildren. This dream, too, was dashed as the life of a monk is lived in celibacy. Luther, however, absolutely excelled at monk life. He was quiet and disciplined and did everything by the rules. He was so devout, in fact, that in his words, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. But this same perfectionism was also a source of great anxiety for Luther. He felt he had to do things so correctly that he would sometimes confess for up to six hours at a time. After he finished confessing, he would sometimes feel proud at how well he had confessed, then realize that he had succumbed to pride and need to go back and confess again. You can imagine the torment this produced in his mind and life. He became depressed and obsessive. As a monk, he had a lot of time for reflection, and this made the problem worse. He had too much time to think, and this led to more obsession and deeper depression. You see, Luther had always been a little afraid of God. As a child, he remembered thinking of God as angry and always ready to punish. He took this fear into adulthood, and it affected his spiritual life as a monk. He felt that in order to be at peace and restored with God, he had to confess all of his sins and be repentant. The problem with that line of thinking is that you can only maintain that peace for a few minutes at a time before anxiety is destined to set back in, before the next sin is committed and needs to be repented of again. It became an obsessive-compulsive cycle. Thankfully, his mentor and confessor saw that the life of a monk was taking a toll on Luther. 
and ordered him out of the monastery in 1512 and into a teaching position at the University of Wittenberg. This move placed him back into a more public role, and in Wittenberg he ended up changing the world. Luther was dissatisfied with aspects of the Catholic Church, particularly the sale of indulgences. Indulgences were fees that you could pay the church to remove oneself or a loved one from purgatory or to cancel out one's sins. The church would then use the money raised for civic projects or the construction of new churches. These practices riled Luther. In Wittenberg, the church raised a lot of money on November 1st each year. November 1st was All Saints Day. Frederick the Wise had a large collection of religious relics that he would open up to be viewed by the public on that day each year for an admittance fee. When I say relics, I mean supposed artifacts of religious significance, like the thorns from Jesus' crown or things used by his mother Mary. For an admission fee, the church was offering the public to view these relics and also get full remission of all sins, either for themselves or for a loved one who had already died. I mean, what a bargain, right? You can imagine the kind of draw that would have for people. Most of them had no access to a Bible for themselves, so they believed church officials and the promises they made. Luther grew more and more angry over this. He felt this practice was corrupt and blasphemous. He also felt it was founded on works-based salvation, not grace-based salvation. On the eve of All Saints Day, on October 31, 1517, Martin Luther wrote a famous letter to the archbishop asking him to end the sale of indulgences and listed 95 theses written in Latin. I know, I know, we think of him nailing it to the door of the church. However, it's debated whether or not he actually nailed them to the door, but we know that he sent them in a letter. This was an incredibly bold act that could have had great consequences, including prison or excommunication. What this letter did was begin a religious revolution. Martin Luther gained fame within a month and started to gain the support of the common people. He began to speak and share that God wanted to speak to all people of the world, and that Christ was the only mediator between God and man, not the Pope. His ideas were radical, and they began to spread through word of mouth and through pamphlets. His ideas even began to spread among monks and nuns. Luther even began to argue against vows of celibacy in the Catholic Church and began to talk about the goodness of Christian marriage, though he himself was not married. At that time, sexuality, even within marriage, was considered corrupt and sinful and only useful for reproduction. As Luther's ideas spread, a new problem developed as monks and nuns began renouncing their vows to join the Reformation movement. The monks who left their old way of life and joined the Reformation movement could easily transfer over into pastors and leaders in the Protestant church. But what about the role of women? There was nowhere for nuns to go. There was no place for them in the Protestant church among the clergy. Their only role would be as a pastor's wife. But what about older nuns past the marrying age? It was hard for women to find meaningful employment, and this led to a real quandary. So, right here, let's pick back up with Katerina. Somehow, she even heard about Luther's movements from behind the convent walls, and believe me, they were pretty thick. She and some of the nuns that she lived with wanted to leave the convent life. Some wrote to family to be released, but they were turned down. Finally, they turned to Martin Luther himself and wrote him a letter asking him to help them escape. And y'all, this is where it gets really good. He did. Famous Martin Luther himself agreed to help them escape. 
He made arrangements for them, and on April 14, 1523, on Easter Eve, somewhere between nine and twelve nuns, including Katerina, escaped their convent. Because it was Easter Eve, they stayed up later than usual to participate in lighting the Pascal fire. The nuns hoped this change in routine would help everyone be too distracted to notice any noises in the night. Finally, they heard the sound of a cracking whip. That was their signal, and they left their cells with only the clothes they were wearing. They silently climbed into a wagon outside the convent and hid under tarps. It was definitely not a conventional escape. The wagon that Luther sent was that of a herring merchant. So uh, there's a good chance that they escaped smelling like fish. It was a miraculous escape for lots of reasons. No one intercepted any of the letters going back and forth between Luther and the nuns. No one gave away any information. And these were women who weren't supposed to be talking during their day at all. So communication would have been hard anyway, much less trying to plan an escape. On Easter morning, though, they were free. They stopped and changed out of their habits and veils and put on regular clothing so they would blend in. They were taken to Wittenberg, into the Black Cloister, the name of the convent where Luther was staying. Now, however, came the problem for Luther of figuring out what to do with these escaped nuns. Two were placed immediately with families, and for the rest, essentially Luther became a matchmaker. He wrote letters and made arrangements for them. He married all of them off within months, except for an older nun who ended up finding work as a school headmistress. And that left just Katerina. Katerina soon had a suitor for herself, Jerome Hieronymus Baumgartner. It seems that she really liked him a lot and assumed they would get married. However, in the end, he did not propose and married someone else who had a better dowry. Then she was in a real lurch. She was heartbroken and had no money. Luther tried to make another match for Katerina with a pastor named Kaspar Glatz, but Katerina did not like him, so she said no. Luther was angry that she had the audacity to turn down his match. Not only, though, was she bold enough to turn down the match, she actually made an even bolder move and announced an ultimatum. She was willing to marry Luther himself or his friend and fellow reformer, Nicholas von Amstorf. Wow, what a gutsy lady. This was a huge risk. She virtually had no options and was at the mercy of these men, and still she made a stand for who she was willing to spend the rest of her life with. To everyone's surprise, Martin Luther himself decided to marry her. No one saw this coming. He wasn't in love with her, and she wasn't in love with him either. So why did he say yes? Well, we may never know for sure, but here are some reasons. Luther was working hard to redefine the way the church viewed matrimony. Marriages in that time were not well regulated, and for a fee, the church would dissolve a marriage. Luther wanted to transform the way that marriage was viewed and treated by the church. So, in getting married, he was establishing a precedent of having married rather than unmarried clergy and Reformation churches. However, he didn't think he himself would get married. After all, because of all the risks he was taking, he was always prepared to die the death of a heretic. Why would he get married only to leave a widow because he was martyred? He did decide to marry Katerina in the end, though. Surprising everyone, because he wanted to practice what he was preaching. He also wanted to please his father and give him grandchildren, something that as a monk would have never happened. Also, and most importantly, he wanted to be obedient to Christ. So even though they weren't apparently very attracted to one another, or in love when they got married, she married because he was her best option, he married because of love for Christ, 
and their marriage caused not only scandal, but was a key part of the reformation of the church. They were married on Tuesday, June 13, 1525, in Wittenberg, in the living room of the black cloister where he lived. It was a quiet and private affair. Two weeks later, they celebrated publicly in church. People lined the streets to watch. Back then, a wedding feast was to be put on to celebrate, and the bride and groom were supposed to pay for it. But Martin Luther was poor, so they had a modest feast, and guests contributed venison and beer to help out. It was a strange match, to be sure. A monk and a nun who had broken their celibacy vows to marry one another? He was 42, and she was 26. Yet they ended up being a perfect match. Many people opposed their union, and rather than slandering Luther, most often it was Katerina who got maligned. She was threatened and slandered as being a temptress to Luther or worse. Even King Henry VIII disapproved of Luther's marriage, like he had a lot of room to talk about marriages. Katerina was a hard worker, and she worked hard to get the black cloister into tip-top shape. The black cloister was a former Augustinian monastery and a Luther family holding. They converted it into a home. Luther had definitely been living the bachelor life, and neatness and cleanness had not been his top priority. Their marriage bed, she discovered, had not had the straw changed out in quite a while. Just like she had when she was a nun, she got up early in the morning, usually at 4 a.m., and worked until 9. They hosted many guests, as people always wanted to speak and learn from Martin Luther. She did renovations on the Black Cloister and began to expand what they did on their property. Luther must have trusted his wife implicitly because he handed over the family finances for her to manage. With that power, she made two important decisions for their family and property. She purchased more land so they could expand, and she began charging Martin Luther's many visitors room and board. She was savvy, stubborn, hardworking, and a great businesswoman. She managed to turn the Black Cloister into the 16th century version of a conference center, turning the old monk cells into student housing. She also invested income and worked to make their property a large farm with multiple gardens, fish ponds, and fruit orchards. The Luthers owned more cows and pigs than anyone else in Wittenberg. She also started a brewery on her property that produced 8,800 pints of ale each year. She was a busy woman. Luther did not marry a doormat of a woman for sure. She was always ready to challenge him. Once, he tried to have her read the whole Bible in a year, and she said to him, I've read enough. I've heard enough. I know enough. Would to God I lived it. She wouldn't do it. Not that she didn't want to read the Bible, but as a mother and property manager, she didn't have time to sit down and study the Bible the way that he did. She could challenge him in theological discussions, though. Luther held table talks in the evenings, talking through theological problems, issues, and Reformation ideas. Katarina was often present, and not just present and quiet, but participating in conversation. This was at a time when women were to be seen and not heard. Not all of the Black Cloister's visitors appreciated the fact that she talked, or the fact that Martin Luther allowed her to participate in discussions. She was happy to participate, though, and would even interrupt her husband or tell him when he was getting out of line. Martin Luther was known to tease and complain about her to his guests, but of course was very affectionate towards her. I think in some ways we could call that today their version of flirting. After a year of marriage, Martin had grown genuine affection for his wife. He later said, If I should lose my Katie, I would not take another wife, though I were offered a queen. 
The Luthers had six children. Their first child, Johannes, was born June 7, 1526, one year into their marriage. They called him Hans. Then they had Elizabeth in 1527, Magdalena in 1529, Martin in 1531, Paul in 1533, and Margareta in 1534. Sadly, two of their children died while still young. Elizabeth, their second child, died at eight months old, and Magdalena, whom they called Lena, died at the age of 13 from an illness. Their other four children, though, lived into adulthood. It's really important to note that life expectancies during the Middle Ages were much lower, mostly due to infant and childhood death rates. So at the Black Cloister, they hosted friends and visitors, and they raised their children. Besides their six biological children, they also had up to 11 foster children living with them as well. Luther's sister and her husband died young, so they raised their six children. Two of Luther's nephews and two poor relatives of Katerina lived with them too. It was a lively place to live, I'm sure. It seems that the Luthers co-parented, and Luther was an active participant in the parenting process. I don't think that was always common practice back then. The Luthers struggled through many obstacles that could have stressed their marriage, from everyday opposition to their union, to the stress of raising children and many foster children, to health problems, to the death of children. Throughout the struggles and grief, they supported one another and drew strength from one another and from God. He died in 1546, and she was heartbroken. He advised her to sell the black cloister if he died, but she didn't want to. Although it was illegal to do so, Luther's will named Katerina his sole inheritor and the guardian of their children. It was a move ahead of the time, and it caused problems after his death. There were many disputes about this, and guardians were named for her children after his death. She was able to keep the property, though, and to keep her younger children at home with her. Although she was a savvy businesswoman, life was hard after the death of her husband. Besides grief, there were financial and stressful circumstances that developed. In 1546, Wittenberg became a military zone. They were forced to leave. When they came back in 1547, the property was in poor condition. She began begging for help from electors and authorities and tried calling in favors. In 1547, the King of Denmark gave her money. She continued to rent out rooms as long as she could. Then, in 1552, the plague came to Wittenberg. She had to flee, and by this time, it was the third time she'd had to leave her property since her husband's death. She did not have an easy time of it. When she fled Wittenberg, she had her two youngest children with her. But she didn't make it very far before her horse startled and Katerina was thrown from their cart and fell hard into a ditch of dirty cold water. She lay injured and hardly conscious. Her children helped her get back into the wagon, but she never fully recovered. She lay for three months, in and out of consciousness, and died on December 20, 1552. When she died, she was around the age of 53. A large crowd came to her funeral, and after her death, due to her hard work, her children's financial security was taken care of. So although we have little from Katerina's own mouth or her own hand, through the stories of her husband and what we know that she did, we can learn a lot. Katerina was important because the Reformation movement may have looked very different were it not for Luther's marriage to her. She and her husband are perhaps the most famous couple of Christian history. In some ways, she helped save him by helping him live out his theology and really learning how to love. She was a bold woman who came from hard places and continued to have hard circumstances her whole life, abandoned as a child, ostracized by the church, gossiped about, 
losing two children, and then widowed as a young woman. Raising a family and holding a property together at a time when women were not respected or left in charge. Still, Katarina's bold faith sustained her. I'm encouraged by her story, and I hope you are too. What stands out to you about her life and her faith? I'd love to hear about it. Drop a comment under today's show notes on the website, pauserenewnext.com, or join the conversation on PRN's Facebook page. Today's biography episode came from the following resources. The National Geographic article, How a Runaway Nun Helped an Outlaw Monk Change the World by Andrew Curry. The podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class. The episode titled, Three Reformation Women. The book, 50 Women Every Christian Should Know by Michelle DeRusha. And most of this episode came from the fantastic book, Katerina and Martin Luther, The Radical Marriage of a Runaway Nun and a Renegade Monk by Michelle DeRusha. And I will link to those resources in today's show notes. Friends, you can find PRN Pause Renew Next on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And you can find this podcast on almost any podcasting app, including, but not limited to, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, CastBox, Overcast, Pandora. You get the picture. Go subscribe. If you found today's podcast interesting, please share it with others. Well, that is all for this podcast episode. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN. Pause, renew, next. The podcast. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus. Jesus.